Welcome to The Archivist. I'm Jana, and I am committed to preserving the details of crimes that are committed and the lives that are lost. Welcome to The Archivist. Warning, this case involves the death of children. If this is a sensitive issue for you, please skip this one. If you're listening to this episode, I'm going to assume that you also saw the title, Hideous Mother. I have no other way to describe Susan Smith. I am a mother and I cannot, I can't wrap my brain around a mother knowingly taking action that will result in the death of her child or children. So going forward, any mother who kills her children will be filed under the category of hideous mother. The country was introduced to Susan Smith on Wednesday, October 26, 1994. At around 9 p.m., 9.15, the night before, on Tuesday, October 25th, 23-year-old Susan Smith was driving her car with her two young sons, 3-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander. She came to a stop at a red light on South Carolina 49, which is like an interstate. She said while she stopped at the traffic light, a man jumped into the passenger seat of her car, put a gun into her side, and told her, just drive. She drove the car about five miles north on South Carolina 49, and he then made her stop the car and ordered her to get out. She told the police that she begged him to let her take her boys with her, but the carjacker refused. He then slammed the door of the car shut and drove away. Susan said that she was screaming to the boys, saying that she loved them and everything would be all right. The next day, on Wednesday, Susan's husband, David Smith, made a televised plea to the carjacker, kidnapper, saying, take the car, whatever you want, but please return our children. Please, please, I love you boys. I love you and know that you are going to be home soon. Susan expressed her worries about the boys not being properly dressed or not having warm enough clothes because it was supposed to dip down into the 30s overnight in South Carolina. Immediately, police began a massive search for the car and the two boys. They first concentrated in the Union, South Carolina area, and then later extended their search to include parts of North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee. A nationwide alert was also issued with a composite sketch of the black man, a black man, that Susan described. The police take many calls of possible sightings, including one of a similar car to the one that Smith was driving, a 1990 Mazda Protégé. This car and driver were spotted in Cherokee County near the Georgia state line. A convenience store clerk called the police after seeing a suspicious man who only bought $10 worth of gas. The police arrived at the quick stop and viewed the surveillance video, but could not tell for sure if the car was Smith's. On Wednesday, Susan told newspaper reporters, I have placed my faith in the Lord. I just feel hopeless. I can't do enough. My children wanted me. They needed me, and now I can't help them. This statement to me is so eerie. It, it's knowing the outcome of this, it's, it creeps me out. She's literally telling the world that she heard her children calling for her help, and she did nothing. Both Susan and David said that they had not been able to sleep, and they were feeling very worried. Of course they were. 
Susan was quoted in the newspaper saying, I just want the safe return of my kids. I don't give a damn about the man. I just want my children. Susan also said that the carjacker had let her talk to the boys and to try and calm them down, but then told her to shut up. She stated, I feel like such a failure. Well, yeah, you should. And she said that the last thing she said to them was that she loved them and everything would be fine. And I'm not a psychologist, but I think that Susan is trying to play out these scenarios with the reporters that make her sound like she's a good mother and to like assuage her guilt. While Susan and David are talking to newspaper reporters and making passionate pleas on TV, the rest of her small town comes out in force to help locate these boys. Flyers are made and they distribute them all over the city of Union, but also neighboring cities. These have pictures and information about both of the boys and Susan's car and, you know, what what she says happened the night they were kidnapped. Residents in Union not only distributed these flyers in the neighboring towns, they also went to the Charlotte airport and distributed them there. So let's find out about Susan. Susan Lee Vaughn was born September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. She was the youngest of three children and the only girl in her family. Her childhood was marred with lots of abuse and instability. In 1977, when Susan was six years old, her father, Harry Ray, took his own life. Losing a parent at a young age is traumatic, and Susan was left to deal with her grief by herself. She kept few mementos of her dad, not very much. She had a recording of his voice and a coin collection. Her mother remarried a man named Beverly Russell, who was a successful stockbroker a member of the Christian Coalition, and the South Carolina Republican community. Russell also sexually abused Susan for several years. Susan suffered from depression, but from all accounts, it appears she did not get any mental health therapy. At age 13, Susan tried to commit suicide by taking an overdose of aspirin, but this attempt did not work, obviously. In 1987, Susan reported the abuse the sexual abuse to a school counselor and to her mother. When her mom confronted Russell, he cried and swore that he wouldn't do it again and he agreed to go to family counseling. But I I have so much rage over this. He just said he wouldn't do it again and you're okay with that. I I, I don't get it. Anyway, Russell was not just a disgusting pedophile, he's also a lying liar because he continued to abuse Susan. Susan attempted suicide more than once, and she this includes an attempt in 1989, shortly after her high school graduation. Her reason for this attempt came after a married man that she had a relationship with broke up with her. Later, when she was receiving counseling after this attempt at self-harm, she told her psychiatrist that she was having a consensual affair with her stepfather. She didn't like her mother getting all of the male attention and she wanted that for herself. Yikes. Later that year in 1989, Susan met a young man working at the Winn-Dixie supermarket. He was named David Smith. David was a Jehovah's Witness with very strict parents. However, less than a year after they began dating, Susan and David got married. 
She was two months pregnant at the time. The year they got married was tumultuous. One of David's brothers passed away after a battle, a long battle with Crohn's disease. And after this death of his brother, his father attempted suicide. Just didn't know how to deal with his grief. I just don't think that either of these two were in a good place to make life-altering decisions. And the fact that their marriage is so crazy tells me that they, they definitely should have waited. But I guess when your life is filled with that kind of stress and instability, it's hard to see that it could be different or maybe should be different. Unfortunately, tragedy is never far away from these two. The relationship between Susan and David is not good. Never, ever. It is never good. They both have extramarital relationships, which is just a very nice way of saying that they were both cheaters. David didn't know or understand the depths of Susan's depression and dependent personality disorder. And the couple, who was only married for a few short years, 1991 to 1994, they separated several times over the three years that they were married. In 1993, Susan's most significant extramarital relationship begins. Susan had taken a job at Conso Products and began a relationship, a sexual relationship, with her boss's son, Tom Findlay. This began in January. Tom was a handsome 27-year-old man who was also rich, which Susan never had. He broke things off with her in October of 1994, saying he didn't want to have a relationship with a person who had kids. Susan went to see Tom on October 25th and begged him not to end things. She also told Tom that David had some information about her that he was going to make public and she was worried about it. Susan and David were separated at this point and had filed for divorce. I think she was trying to play that I'm having a crisis and you big man can help me game like that maybe that would endear her to him that he was she was coming to him for with trouble but it didn't work and he basically was like no we're ending things and then she got mad and she called him a bunch of names and then claimed that she had slept with his father and at that point he kicks her out of his house later that evening at 9:15 Susan called 911 and reported her 1990 Mazda protege as stolen with her children in it so now that we're all caught up by October 30th, the FBI is called in, and at this time they are using a program called Rapid Start. The Rapid Start program is a team of FBI agents experienced with investigations. There's also some technical experts, and this team is able to quickly load information that comes from like tip lines and also from the investigators and they can put it into a database that can then quickly analyze the data and find patterns and highlight credible leads such as we you know we got several phone calls on the tip line saying that they saw the car in this area. So that's how it helps investigators. The Rapid Start program at this point is still in its infancy and it does later on, they do use it and they continue using it and the FBI for many years. It assisted agents with the Oklahoma City bombing, the Olympic bombing in 1996, and also the 9-11 attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. The Union County Sheriff Howard Wells made several interesting moves and comments 
that are reported in the newspapers. First, he tells reporters that it's too early to offer a reward for the boy's return. Then he says that they will not provide a second sketch of the carjacking suspect. And he also will not confirm to reporters that Susan Smith failed a polygraph test. They continue to ask him, but he will not give the results of that test. He only says that they are working diligently to corroborate her story. In hindsight, I think these are early clues that the police were not believing Susan's story. Police continue to question Susan about the night of the kidnapping, and there are small inconsistencies that are cropping up in the investigators' minds that really cause them to doubt her story. Within a day of the supposed carjacking, the police thought Susan had something to do with this disappearance of her sons. They were certain that she knew where the boys were the whole time, and they just felt like they needed to act quickly to ensure that they were brought home safely and alive. But by October 30th, the police were no longer believing what she was saying. They had worked to locate her car, but could find no trace of it. And so they started to search the area ponds and lakes, including Long Lake. The police continued to put pressure on Susan while they were searching. And all the while, too, they're still getting thousands of tips coming into the hotline. And the FBI agents are working to verify each of these tips. There is one tip that comes from Seattle, Washington, that had the description of the car and the two children, Michael and Alexander. But the agents are able to verify that this is not the two boys or Susan's car. But they wanted it to be because they wanted to think that these boys were safe and not harmed. Over the next five days, David and Susan continue to make emotional pleas on television. On Thursday, November 3rd, they do several interviews on morning talk shows. After this media tour, the police take Susan back to the police station and question her again. And it is at this time that she confesses to killing her children. She told the police that she drove her car into John D. Long Lake and left the boys strapped in their car seats. After nine days of intense searches and investigation, the police arrested Susan for the murder of her children. Susan told investigators that she thought her car would be found quickly and that they would think the kidnapper carjacker had ditched the car in the water. But unfortunately, it did not happen that way. On October 30th, when searchers began to search lakes and ponds in the area, they only searched the first 30 feet off the shore, but the car was actually 122 feet from the shore. Police were on to Susan from nearly the very beginning. Susan had claimed that she stopped at a red light at an empty intersection. Police had determined that this light would not have turned red unless there was another vehicle present on the intersecting road. Susan told police that there were no other cars around. She did also fail the polygraph test that was given two days after the boys went missing. The police were questioning her and everything that happened, and I think that she saw the writing on the wall. I think she realized that they didn't believe her and that her story was falling apart, and so I think that's why she finally confessed. The people in Union and surrounding communities that had spent time distributing flyers and searching for the car were absolutely devastated when the news of Smith's arrest spread. I can remember how I felt watching this unfold, and I'm not anywhere near there. It was a stunning turn. I think now we are kind of jaded to this and that 
we've seen this more than once at this point. But in 1994, I don't think we'd been exposed to this kind of thing. And it was shocking. One article from 1994 was written by Jennifer Graham, and it appeared in the newspaper, The State. The title of the article just sums it up. It says, incomprehensible. And she says, is it possible? How, damn it, could it be? Susan Vaughn Smith is the mom for crying out loud. Moms don't kill children. Uh, she goes on to the end of, at the end of the article and says, the stony-faced sheriff said they were holding Susan Smith in an undisclosed location. It's a good thing. Most moms don't want to hurt their kids, but there are times when they would like to hurt a grown-up. Yes, Jennifer, yes. That is exactly how I feel too. I am a mother, and I think most of us mothers can identify with that mama bear image. And just so you know, I'm not just a mama bear for my kid. I'm a mama bear for any kid. And I think that is true of most mothers. So this is the most unbelievable thing that could happen. This is inhuman, incomprehensible. Sorry, I got a little fired up. But that's why from now on, a mother who kills her children will be filed under hideous mother. In January 1995, the prosecuting attorney, Tommy Pope, announced that he would seek the death penalty in Susan's case. This became a very polarizing topic in South Carolina. Many people felt that it was a waste of tax dollars to go after the death penalty, but Tommy Pope felt that the nature of the crime and the motives and reasons for it were heavy enough to get the punishment. In June of 1995, Susan Smith's attorney, David Brock, petitioned to keep cameras out of the courtroom, saying that the exposure of the case on television could influence the jurors. The prosecution took a no-position argument, stating that they are neutral on the matter, Judge William Howard agreed with the defense, and so he said that televising the trial could affect the witnesses, and unless the jury is sequestered, they could also be influenced. Eventually, the judge does decide to sequester the jury, but at the time of this motion, that decision had not been made. On July 18, 1995, Susan Smith's trial began. The prosecution described Susan's fabricated story as a concoction to hide the fact that she had murdered her children because they were an obstacle in continuing an affair with Tom Finley. Susan's defense team took the position that the death of Susan's two sons was an accident in a botched suicide attempt by an unstable woman who was devastated by the rejection of the man she loved. The prosecution called many witnesses to the stand, including a diver from the South Carolina Wildlife Department. He had been in the water when the boys were found. Steve Morrow testified that he could see a small hand against the glass. He broke down into tears as he described the car nose down in the mud at the bottom of the lake. As part of their botched suicide defense, her attorneys used the handwritten confession that she gave to police as proof that she was distraught. They pointed out parts where she had written, I was in love with someone very much, but he didn't love me and he never would. Tom Finley took the stand and he did tell the court that he saw Susan three different times on October 25th and that she had been very emotional. The prosecution laid this out as proof that Susan made the decision to kill her children 
after Finley ended their affair. Pope produced a two-page letter from Finley to Susan that was found in the car after it was brought up from the bottom of the lake. The letter read, There are some things about you which aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children. I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. When the defense questioned Tom Finley, he did speak compassionately about Susan. He said, the Susan that I know is very caring, very loving, a good friend to everyone, not just me. Uh, I okay, I just don't see it. Maybe he believes that. I don't. When he was questioned about their affair ending, he did say that his intention was to end the affair on good terms, but she was just too distraught. He he did testify, though, that he had made the decision to end the relationship with her about 10 days before when he saw her kissing another man at a hot tub party. I mean, your story is looking a little thin there, Susan. Susan's main line of defense was her dysfunctional background and the effect on her psychological health. Her defense team called a caseworker named Jenny Ward. She had worked with Susan after her 1989 suicide attempt. She told the court about the investigation into Smith's allegations of being molested by her stepfather. Jenny Ward stated, This is child sexual abuse. It is criminal in nature. The child said it. The perpetrator admitted it. However, despite this, her family refused to press charges against Beverly Russell. Ward continued to testify that if if child sex abuse is not properly treated, it can have adverse reactions later in life. Pope seemed unfazed by Ward's testimony and revealed that Susan Smith had continued a consensual sex relationship with her stepfather into adulthood even while she was married to David Smith and having a relationship with Tom Findlay. Pope made his feelings about Susan Smith very clear in his closing arguments. He said, On the night of October 25th, Susan Smith made a choice, a horrible, horrible choice. She chose the love of a man over the love of those boys. Letting go of that emergency break was like pulling a trigger. The intent was formed when she pulled the trigger to the car and let it drop down into the lake. Judy Clark, a member of Smith's defense team, followed the prosecutor's closing arguments with absurd. Sadness is what brings us together, not evil. The love of Susan Smith for those two boys was unbelievable. And let me interrupt you right here, Judy. Uh, I think this is where the defense loses the whole case. What's absurd is trying to say that a woman who intentionally drove her car into a lake with her two children strapped inside it has unconditional love. But anyway, back to you, Judy. Judy's closing arguments went on to say, There is no evidence of anything but absolute unconditional love. I literally cannot continue to read this woman's closing argument. It's ridiculous. So even if Susan had truly meant to take her own life, she was also intent on taking the lives of her sons at the same time. I don't think anyone views a murder-suicide situation as a loving act. It is an ultimate form of abuse. Anyway, 
her defense team told the jury that they should find her guilty of manslaughter because she didn't mean to kill her children. Seriously, I can't anymore with this. On July 22nd, the jury takes the case from the court. They deliberated for just two and a half hours, and they came back with a verdict of guilty of murder. During the penalty phase, her defense team relied very heavily on testimony about her father's suicide and then the abuse at the hands of her stepfather. Russell testified on her behalf, begging the jury not to give her the death penalty. The jury did agree with the mitigating circumstances, and they gave a life sentence in prison with the chance of parole after 30 years. This means that she will be eligible for parole in 2025. On July 26, 1995, David Smith released a book called Beyond All Reason, My Life with Susan Smith. The book was used as a kind of therapy for him to process the tragedy of losing his sons. In 2003, David married his longtime partner, Tiffany Moss. He struggled with being married and becoming a father again, saying, there was no way I can make it through burying another child. This man is not strong enough to do that. But after his daughter Savannah was born, he experienced a lot more healing and later they had a second child, a son named Nicholas. David told Oprah when he was a guest on her show, I enjoy being a father very much. There is no greater love in the world than loving a child. I recently saw a show on either like Oxygen or HLN. I can't remember which show it was but they went through the details of Susan Smith's case. And David was a participant in the show. He spoke very openly about his grief over losing his sons. On the show, he did say that his two kids know about their brothers. It was very clear that David still struggles with his grief and misses the lives that his two sons should have had. He's chosen to raise his children and live his life privately. This is the end of our hideous mother story. I just pray that in 2025, Susan Smith does not get parole. I did not look up any interviews or quotes by her regarding her guilt. I don't really care what she says. I hope that she has dreams of those sweet boys every night and she is haunted by their cries. If you would like to see pictures from this case, I will have them posted on the website, thearchivistpodcast.com. And as always, if you could please like and subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on, I would greatly appreciate it. We could also use some five-star reviews to help us move up the charts. Thank you. The Archivist is a production of Three Sisters Crime Squad.